wanted to make sure we remember and keep in front of ourselves are the build disciplines. So if you have your notebook, flip it over and let's look at the back. Um, what we want to do is keep in front of ourselves the fact that any ministry that we're involved in at Discipline 3 flows out of the household that we're involved in at Discipline 2, which flows out of our own heart shepherding at Discipline 1. And so it is imperative that as men, we are meeting with the Lord in prayer, meeting with the Lord in his word, caring for our own heart so the fruit of that can flow into the household that we live in, so that the fruit of that can flow into this church when we get here. Um, and then we can become guys who are eager to pursue qualification as a deacon or an elder in this church. And then we are guys who are learning and learning and learning how to handle the word. What we want is for guys to understand, if you can understand at the end of April when we're going to be done here on April 27th or so, that um, caring for your own heart is the essential centerpiece of the Christian faith and of the Christian body together, then, then we, have, we can mark this down as a win. So keep in front of you that principle. Um, what we're going to talk about today is one of the aspects of, of what happens when you read your Bible did you ever notice how many times you read your Bible and you open up and there's genealogies in front of you? There are genealogies in a lot of places in Scripture. I won't see everywhere, but there are a lot of places that you see genealogies. And if you've got the reading plan that I'm on, you start up on January 1, you're in Matthew 1, and the first thing you see is a genealogy. Oh, and in that same reading plan, you're also in, in Genesis. And so on day 3, you get hit with a genealogy. And then you get hit with a, Not day 3 of creation, but day 3 of of your reading plan. And so then you read your Bible and then it's just genealogies throughout. And what I want to do is, is talk about um, what God is doing and, and how to view those because, you know, you've got your reading plan, you've got your schedule of reading for the day and you look at it and you go, all I'm reading are names. And how do I counsel my heart? How do I care for my heart so that I can care for my home when I'm reading names? So let's go to Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2, God tells us of what the world should be like. He creates it and everything's good. You've got the fall in chapter 3. Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent. We're going to go to Genesis 3. We're going to look at God's response to the serpent. We're going to look at verse 15. He said, you are cursed above everything else in chapter 3, verse, verse 14. Cursed more than anything else. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's Eve. I'm going to put enmity between you and between your seed and her seed. So right there, God is saying, there is this idea of what is coming. Now, Satan does not have children, but he has demons under him. You find that very clearly when you read Revelation 9. Eve has, Eve is going to be the, the, the mother of all of the family lines that come. And so what God is doing here is he is establishing a pattern. He's establishing a mindset that there is going to be one family line from which something will happen. And you see that at the end of verse 15. He shall bruise you on the head. He is one of the descendants of Eve. We know that's going to be Christ. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So right there you see who the conqueror is. It's the one who bruises on the head, and that's Jesus. And you see that when you read Revelation 20. That's the story of the 1,000-year reign, and you see at the very end of that, Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire where the prophets are, the false prophet and the beast are. And so at the end of this, you know that Jesus conquers, Jesus wins, he reigns. What you have in the middle here are genealogies that help you understand how that actually happens. And so you're reading these genealogies, and they look like names, and they're people, and they're, they're names from another culture and another time, and we're here in the 21st century, 
and we're looking at these names, what we need to keep in front of us is that God is helping us see that there is a family line from which the conqueror comes. And he's helping us see how that happens. So what we do is we turn ahead and we see, let's flip a few pages to Genesis chapter 6. You see the story of the flood. And you see the story of Noah. Um, before you get to Genesis 6, you actually get to Genesis 4. You see one of the family lines that does not produce the conqueror. Genesis 4 is the story of uh, the descendants of Cain. Those are all the people who were destroyed in the flood. Genesis 5, you see the story of the family line that succeeds through the flood. And it starts with Adam and his son Seth and goes through and you have 10 generations and you get to Noah. Okay, and then when, so you're reading this generation thing and there's names and there's ages and, and, but the main thing we need to keep in mind is God is showing us that he is producing a line from which the conqueror will come. And so that happens in Genesis chapter 5. You see Noah, he's 500 years old, he builds the ark, the flood, everything happens. And what we do is we're going to flip over to Genesis chapter 11. And what we're going to see there is we're going to see how we get from Noah to Abraham. And all of Israel looks back to Abraham as their father. So you see, you drop down to chapter 11, verse 10. And again, you've got genealogy here. You've got family history, their names, and you're reading your Bible and you're trying to shepherd your heart. And you see chapter 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem is one of the three sons of, of Noah who was with him on the ark. And you follow this down and you read this and you get down to Abram in verse 27 or so. So what God has given Israel, and Moses was writing this when Israel had come out of slavery and they're in the wilderness and they're heading for the promised land. God is showing Israel, this is where the family line starts from which I am going to bring a conqueror. And so Israel has this. They've just been in slavery for 400 years. This is why Israel has this record. This is why there's names. So we're reading this today, and a lot of this, you know, the, some of these names that you see in verse 16 and 17, it's not all that, that critical that we know exactly who the person is. What is important is that you see what God is doing. You see that God is building a family line. So you're reading your Bible, and you're reading, and, and you, you get lots of this. If you get to your reading plan, and you're still keeping up with your reading plan, you find yourself in the spring, and you're in First uh, and Second Samuel, and you learn all about Solomon or Saul and David and, and Solomon. Then you read through First and Second Kings, and you see how the, the nation of Israel goes. Then you get to First and Second Chronicles, and you start reading the same thing again. Well, let's turn to First Chronicles chapter one. You're on your reading plan. You sit down, and you're you're, you're shepherding your heart. Not Second Chronicles. First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter one. You notice when First Chronicles chapter 1 starts, um, you're on your reading plan, and I'm sure you, know, you get there, and what do you see? But you see it starts with Adam again. Why are we reading about Adam? Well, we've had Adam back in Genesis, don't we know? Well, what I'm going to help you understand here is something, if you, if you don't already know, this is really important. Flip ahead a couple of pages to First Chronicles chapter 9. The first eight chapters of Chronicles are genealogies. And if you're reading your reading plan, there's a lot of names here. Genesis 1, or sorry, Chronicles 139, the sons of Lotan were Hori and Homam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. You're reading this, and this is inspired, this is from God, um, but we need to figure out how to counsel our hearts. So go to Gen or, uh, 1 Chronicles 9, verse 1, and this is something really important that tells us. So all Israel was enrolled by genealogies, and behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was carried away 
into exile to Babylon for their unfaithfulness. You see the past tense there. Judah was carried away. What this tells you is that First and Second Chronicles were written after the exile. Israel is coming back from 70 years in Babylon captivity. They're back, and they're a much weaker nation. They don't have a king. They don't have a strong land. They don't have a presence. But God says, you are my people, and I want you to understand that it is from you people that the conqueror is going to come. And so what you read is, is this is being given, those first eight chapters of names and names and names are being given to the people who returned from exile to prove to them that they are the nation. They are the ones from whom the, the Messiah will come, the conquering king will come. And so you're reading your Bible and you're, you're shepherding your heart and you're caring for your heart when you do that. Um, so a lot of times it's not about the names you're reading. You, you take a step back and you look at what is God doing when he's doing this. What he's doing is he's showing Israel in the Old Testament that there is a family line that you people are in that I am going to bring the conquering king from that family line. And when you read First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, you only read about the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Because the story in First and Second Chronicles is only the people who came back from exile, the only ones who went into exile, were from Judah. So what you see now is God is narrowing things down. In Kings, the first and second Kings, first and second Samuel, you've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the split that happened after Solomon became king. What God is doing is he's narrowing things in Chronicles and he's saying, <coughs> Judah, it is from you that this conquering king is going to come. And so there were 400 years, uh, the intertestamental period that, that took place after the return from exile. And we're going to get to the, the, the first book in the gospel. We're going to get to Matthew. And we're going to see what happens when you start your reading plan on January 1 in the Gospel of Matthew. So here you have Matthew. He's the last generation of the Old Testament saints. And he is here, and he starts with the, uh, in my translation, it is the fifth word in the New Testament is the word genealogy. I'm in the NAS. The genealogy. Some other translations use the word record or whatever. Um, Matthew starts with a genealogy. Where does he start? He starts with Abraham. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he wants the Jewish audience to understand that Jesus has the legal right to be king. So if you look there, he starts where every Jew starts, and that's Abraham in verse 2. And where does he end? He ends in verse uh, 17. He gets from Abraham to David. So what we have there is how you get from where Israel starts to where the king starts, the, the king that really matters, the king from whom Jesus will come. And so then he describes those generations. And so that is how, well, that's what Matthew is very, very concerned with. He's very concerned with showing that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. But then when you read your, if you stay in your reading plan, if you're on the reading plan that I'm on, um, it takes you through Matthew for a quarter of the year, Mark for a quarter of the year, and then you get to Luke for the third quarter of the year. So flip over to Luke, and Luke chapter 1, you know, you have the story of Mary. Matthew's gospel, the main figure in the first few chapters is Joseph. It's all about Joseph. The, the angel comes to see Joseph. It's about Joseph's family line. It's all about the man. And that's because legal rights were passed down through the man. But we all know that Jesus was not the birth child of Joseph. It was only through Mary because she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Matthew's purpose is to show us that Jesus is a, a legal descendant of the king of Israel, David. So he has the legal right to be the conquering king. 
But then you get to Luke's gospel, you read the story of how, how Mary comes into picture, and, and Luke is focusing on Mary, Luke is a doctor, so the conception and all of that is coming from Luke's perspective as a doctor, and Mary is the main character. And the first couple of chapters talk about all of those things, about John the Baptist and, and everything else, and you get to chapter 3, and you read through all of this, and you get to chapter 3, verse 23, and you see another <coughs> another genealogy. Now remember that all the genealogies we've had so far go left to right in time. They start at the beginning, and they go to the end. When you see Luke's genealogy, he starts actually at the end, and he goes back to the beginning. In verse 23, he says, Jesus was about 30 years of age, as was supposed the son of Joseph. So there he's showing that Jesus is in the family of Joseph. Joseph was his family head. However, you read, um, and Joseph, it says here, Joseph was the son of Eli, or the, Greek, or the Hebrew word there is Heli. That man, Heli, is not Joseph's father. Because if you go back to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see that Joseph's father was actually Jacob. This man was Mary's father. So what Luke is doing is he is showing that the genealogy of Jesus is what it takes place on Mary's side. And when you read this, you read verse 23, you start going backwards, and you realize that she goes, Luke goes all the way back to God. Adam and the Son of God, verse 38. What you see in the middle of this, down in verse 31, is that Mary descended from Nathan, who is David's son. Nathan was the fourth son of David and Bathsheba. So that is where the blood relatives come from, the bloodline of Jesus. So Luke is proving that Jesus is the blood descendant of David, as well as the legal right. He has the legal right to the throne. <coughs> but Matthew states Jesus also is a blood descendant. He has the right. So David and Bathsheba had at least four sons, the first of whom was Solomon. Joseph... Jesus' earthly father descended from Solomon. Mary, Jesus' biological mother, descended from Solomon's brother Nathan, the fourth child, the fourth son that, that Solomon and, and Bathsheba had together. So a lot of times, you know, you're reading these, these names. The names themselves are not critical for us in the 21st century, a lot of them. But what is important is what God is showing. This is what God is showing. And so what God is showing Israel is I am going to create a family line and I am going to bring the conqueror of the enemy from that family line and I'm going to show you that record and that line all the way through the Old Testament. I'm going to do it at the beginning of the Old Testament history. I'm going to do it in the middle of the Old Testament when they come back at the end of the recorded Old Testament when they come back from, from exile. And then I'm going to prove to you in the New Testament in the lifetime of Jesus who Jesus really, really was. So let's jump ahead to, to, Luke, or, uh, to Revelation chapter 20 and see how this all turns out. You see that the one who was claimed to be the conquering king actually was the conquering king. Revelation 20. This has to be one of your favorite chapters in the New Testament. If it's not, read it and it will become. Because this is what is going to be really exciting for the believer. It talks about the thousand year period in verses 1 through 10. This is the thousand year period where, where saints, those who were redeemed, possess this earth and they are co-regents, co-rulers with Jesus on this earth. And you see the word 1,000 years, I believe it's either seven or eight times in this passage. It's mentioned again and again and again and again. The idea is those 1,000 years are real. At the end of the 1,000 years, you, you see what happens at the end of it in verse 7. The 1,000 years are complete. Satan is released from prison. He's been held captive in prison. 
And he will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, gather them together for a war. This is the war that ends the earth. They come to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. Eight simple words describe the end here. It says, fire came down from heaven and destroyed them, devoured them. That is how this, this comes to an end. You see verse 10, the detail of that, the devil who, was deceived, who deceived them, those who got devoured, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever. That is the end of the story. That is the proof of how the family line that starts with Eve and her, her descendants produces a conquering king who conquers <coughs> over the enemy. He has not yet been conquered. He will one day. And so when you're reading your Bible and you're in your reading plan, you've got these genealogies in front of you. You know, it, it, this is inspired scripture. And at the same time, it's from another culture. It's from another time. Keep in mind what God is doing. He is proving to Israel, I am going to bring a Messiah. He is going to save all of those who would put their faith in him and their trust in him. And then he is going to be the conquering king at the end of this age. And he will usher all of his saints into the next age. So keep that in mind with you as you're on your reading plan. I hope you're, you're faithful to your reading plan this year. I hope it blesses you and helps you. Maybe this helps you a little bit when you get to those genealogies and it seems like you're walking in mud. So um, let's keep that in front of us. Okay, guys? We're going to be focusing on discipline number two, the home. And uh, we're going to be looking at a biblical survey of what God's word has to say about the home. We're going to be looking at what scripture says to help us align our view of the household with God's view of the household and, and its importance. And we're going to be running through an awful lot of scripture. And so there's not going to be a lot of time for questions. If you have questions, uh, feel, you can feel free to interrupt me, and I might just defer that to the end, and then we can come talk about it afterwards. But there's going to just be a lot of... Uh, I hope you guys have been practicing your sword drills, because there's going to be a lot of flipping around. All right, let's go ahead and let's get started. Uh, the first category from Scripture to help us align our view of the household with God's heart for the home is uh, specifically God's concern for the household. Let's start in Exodus chapter 20. So flip over to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 12. We're going to be going through these categories. As we go through the categories, the Scripture references are going to be going through our Bibles left to right. The way that God wrote it, we're going to start with the older and we're going to go to the newer as God revealed his word. So starting in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 12. Uh, so, well, before I get started there. Uh, so this is talking about the Exodus. This is after Israel has left, after Moses has led Israel out of Egypt. This is the Ten Commandments. This is shortly after they left Egypt. This is when they came to Mount Sinai. And in verse 12 is, Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or any male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to his neighbor. In the, in the Ten Commandments, in this part of Scripture, God's providing regulations in such a way that has never been done before. He's, he's provided very specific regulations. And God has specific ideas and expectations for this basic foundational relationship called the home, the household. 
uh, early on, God intended to put forth his most formalized regulations for his people. And he did it by revealing the household relationships matter greatly to him. The, the different commandments that we just talked about, verse 12, honor your mother and father. Parent-child relationship, verse seven, or, uh, 14, you know, shall not commit adultery. The husband-wife marriage relationship. Verse 17, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. Focus on your own household. Don't focus anywhere else. Focus on your home. Respect, protect, and honor these relationships. All right, let's flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Here in Deuteronomy, this is after Israel had wandered through the desert for 40 years. They are just across from the Jordan. They have not yet crossed the Jordan. And they're getting another healthy dose of instruction. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Only give heed to your, this is Moses talking, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the, the day, remember the day you stood before Yahweh, your God at Horeb. When Yahweh said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Did you guys see what was in verse nine about discipline number one? God cares about our hearts. Do not let these things depart from your heart all the days of your life. And then the second part of that, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Make them known to your sons and your grandsons. You know, this follows closely on the heels of caring for their own souls and their own hearts first. Discipline number one rolls into discipline number two in this case. And God's concern for Israel is that their hearts would be impacted and that would then impact multiple generations. Not just their own sons and daughters, but also their grandchildren. Multiple generational impact. Uh, All right, flip over a couple pages to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess, so that your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments that I, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged in the land. Uh, dropping down to verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love the, you shall love the Lord your God, love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Loving God... Here is specifically connected to God's word. 
You cannot love God apart from his word. His word is where he's revealed himself. It's how we know who he is and what he expects. And here in verses 4 through 9, God determined that Israel was there. In Israel, there was to be an inseparable connection between what they did with their own heart and what they did with their family. Verses uh, 5 and 6 deal with discipline number 1, the heart. Uh, verses 7 through 9 deal with discipline uh, number 2, teaching them to their sons and, and having their, their homes just be impacted by the word of God. God's word should be a pervasive characteristic in your homes. It should be a pervasive characteristic in your homes. Let's flip over again to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Starting in verse 1. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Pezzarites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when Yahweh your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, for he, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. Israel was not to let these kinds of households, these mixed households, to even begin. Why? Because a generation that intermarries with those of another God are going to impact the homes. They're going to have their hearts turned away, turned away from the Lord, from following after the Lord. The burden on the father and mother in Israel was to shepherd their children in such a way that their children would not abandon the Lord, not abandon Yahweh. And we know that discipline one impacts discipline two, but here the emphasis is actually how discipline two impacts discipline number one. Let's flip over to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Verse 5. For he <clears throat> established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Again, here we see uh, a multi-generational impact <clears throat> that this generation that's not yet born, uh, that they may arise and then tell to their children. Again, multiple generations being impacted here by God's word. There's an inseparable connection 
between man's heart for Yahweh and his obligation to his own children in Israel. Verse 7 teaches that positively, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And then in verse 8, it talks about it negatively. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, did not do discipline one, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. All right, next, let's flip over to Malachi, which is right before Matthew, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every... This is talking about the day of the Lord. Burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am sent, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh. He, Elijah, will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Through Elijah, God will turn the heart of one generation back to the next and vice versa. God's way of preparing his people for Israel for his coming included strengthening household relationships. Again, this is showing God's heart and the importance of the home in his mind. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Children. God is actually addressing children here through the Apostle Paul, writing to children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it will be well with you, and that you may live long in the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Here we have the fifth commandment brought under the authority of Jesus for the church. Children need to shepherd their hearts well on the gospel so as to be prepared to obey and honor their parents. Dads and moms are to shepherd their hearts so as to not be completely frustrating to their children. So this, this is, again, focused on the household relationship, the children's obligation and the parents' obligation uh, in that relationship. God is showing in the New Testament that household relationships matter. Continuing on from what he was already saying in the Old Testament. In, uh, let's flip over to 1 Timothy. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He must be one who manages his house. So this is... Uh, 
talking, this is the Apostle Paul talking to, he wrote this letter to Timothy, addressing qualifications for elders, for overseers. So the overseer, he must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So here, the argument is being made from the lesser household to the greater, from the personal household to the church, God's household. And here for the overseer, the man must be an effective leader in his home so that one, so that everybody else may know that he would be an effective leader in the church. God's design in the church is to have men leading who have trained themselves to oversee their household relationships and who will not play leapfrog over their wives and over their children to perform ministry as they engage in gospel ministry in the church. So that first category, from that first category, it is simply undeniable that God has high expectations for household relationships. Uh, the next category that uh, we're going to walk through to align our views of the home with God's is uh, and one Old Testament man who grasped God's heart for the household. So let's go back to Joshua. Chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24, starting uh, in verses 1 through 3. Then Joshua gathered, well, before, just so this is the last chapter. Uh, this is uh, having talked about the conquest of Canaan. This is after Moses had died, Joshua took over. Uh, they crossed the Jordan and they were uh, cleaning out Canaan. However, they were clearing the land, but they didn't do all of it. Uh, as the way that they should have. And so Joshua here at the end of uh, the book that bears his name says in chapter 24, verse 1, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel for the heads and for their judges and their officers, and they, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Joshua brought Israel to Shechem to start talking about how they had been idol worshipers. Shechem... I'm going to do a little bit of a rabbit trail here with Shechem. Uh, going back to Genesis chapter 33, Shechem was a place and a man. Um, chapter 33. Chapter 33, verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, in which he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city. He bought a piece of land there where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. And then it goes on to where one of Jacob's daughters was raped by Shechem. And the Jacob's other sons went and retaliated against Shechem and killed him. And uh, in chapter 35... Verse 1, 
Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. For Israel, Shechem, the city, was associated with idolatry. This is where Jacob told his household to bury those idols, those false gods. And this should have been identified with burying idolatry and getting rid of it. And so here in Joshua, Joshua brings them and gathers all of these people to Shechem, to this place that is associated with idolatry. And then in verses, uh, starting in verse 14, Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 14, Joshua says, Now therefore, fear Yahweh, and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river in Egypt, and serve Yahweh. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve Yahweh, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we would that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. For Yahweh our God is he who brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went, and among the peoples through whose midst we passed. Yahweh drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We will also serve Yahweh, for he is our God. Then Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm, do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve Yahweh. Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen for yourselves Yahweh to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to Yahweh, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve Yahweh our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up under the oak, which was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua wanted to deeply impact his own household with service and worship to Yahweh, specifically in verse 15. For, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, the people were syncretists. They were mixing. They had a practice of combining uh, serving the Lord, serving the God of Israel, and serving these other foreign gods. Uh, notice in verse 18, we, will, we also will serve the Lord. That doesn't sound like exclusive worship. Um, but that was what they were called to. That's what everyone's called to, because we understand that they are false gods. All of these different things were false gods. 
But they did not want to give them up, and Joshua exhorts them to give them up. And as we find out, as you continue reading from left to right, uh, that they did well. This generation that was around here actually did well. As you roll into the judges and find out that once this generation passed, they did not do so well. Um, and, you know, yeah. So our next uh, category for aligning our view of, God, of the household with God's um, Number three, we're going to review some Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the household. Uh, the first one we're going to cover is Moses, and that's going to be in Exodus chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 21. So in this part of Exodus, this is before Moses has actually gone into Egypt. Well, he was a prince of Egypt, he came out of Egypt, and now he's going back. Um, he had not yet gone back. He was on his way to go back to deliver the people. Uh, Moses didn't want to go, if you remember. And then he says, okay, I'll go. And in verse 21, Yahweh said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that Yahweh met him, Moses, and sought to put Moses to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let Moses alone. At that time, she said, Zipporah, you are a bridegroom of blood. Because of the circumcision. Moses <clears throat> put God's deliverance of his people Israel at risk by neglecting to circumcise his own son. His family did not have the sign of the covenant in the next generation. Moses was on his way to inform Israel that, the, that, that he was in covenant with the sign of circumcision and who was concerned to deliver them, failed to take the covenant seriously within his own family. Could the covenant-neglecting man speak for the covenant-keeping God about his covenant people? Praise God for godly, obedient wives. How was Moses supposed to deliver the covenant people when he was neglecting the sign of the covenant within his own family? Uh, the next one we're going to, the next failure we're going to talk about is Eli, and that's over in 1 Samuel. First Samuel chapter 2. Starting in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know Yahweh. It's a pretty big indictment right there. And the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also they burned the fat. The priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting. 
as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as, as, as you desire. Then they would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. If not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before Yahweh, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Dropping down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old. He heard all that his sons were doing in all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Eli said to his sons, why do you do such things? evil things that I hear from all the people. No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear Yahweh's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for Yahweh desired to put them to death. And in verse 29, dropping down to verse 29, why do you kick, this is, God talking to Eli, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choices of every offering of my people? Therefore, Yahweh, God of Israel, declares, I indeed, I did indeed say that your house and your and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now Yahweh declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me, I will, uh, despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of the father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. You honor your sons above me. That's a helpful clarification and a protection. With all the emphasis that we've already been talking about household relationships, God is not looking for household members to honor one another above him and God ended this priestly family if you would continue to read you'd find that Eli died his sons died and that he no longer every time uh, he had there was a continuation of his line they died an early death God ended this family a priestly family mediating between him and his people to work out another father's line for the priesthood the next one we're going to talk about is Samuel, who actually was the next one. And uh, just a couple pages over in 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 15. Now Samuel <laughs> judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gigal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to Yahweh. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint, for, now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. The nation chafed under Samuel's sons. This ungodly request for a king was inseparately tied to the chafing they all felt under Samuel's sons' ungodly leadership. 
Samuel's ministry, while he was a very godly man and God used him in a number of great ways, but his ministry lacked the integrity that it could have had. He is a great Old Testament example of how the lapse or failure of discipline two impacts the ministry, discipline number three. Because his household relationships were out of order. Um, we're going to skip the next one. We're going to drop down to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11. Starting in verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to <coughs> Yahweh his God, as the heart of David his father had been. In verse 9, now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Notice how the building of one's house, contrary to God, God's will adversely effect, impacted his heart. How D2 can hinder D1. In these verses, six times it references the heart. Not taking care of Solomon, not taking care of his relationship with his wife, also brought great pain on the nation. You simply cannot conclude from Scripture, Old Testament so far, that the household isn't important. It appears to be the decisive place, relationally speaking, and yet how quickly we think of other relationships outside of our homes as the ones that matter most. The next category we're going to talk about to align our view of the home with God's is the ease at which God is forgotten in the household. So we're flipping back over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 10. Then it shall come about when Yahweh your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Prosperity that they did not work for, watch yourself, right? That's a, a warning for all this prosperity that they were going to be receiving. Flipping over to chapter 8. Starting in verse 11, beware that you do not forget 
Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good homes, houses, and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How very sad that the home, their household, their home, becomes the platform for where God is forgotten. We receive all these other things, all these other good things from the Lord, and we can forget. We can forget. And the home is where that can become a platform for where God is forgotten. Uh, The next category, number five, the next category for aligning our view of the home with God's view is uh, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. The impact of one's faith on the entire household. And here we're going to go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 22. This is, the context of this is when Peter uh, was given a vision, and here Cornelius was also given a vision. Um, and this was prior to uh, Peter knowing that the Gentiles were also going to be included. Um, he was given the vision. He was going to be going to this uh, Gentile, Cornelius. That's where we are. And in verse 22, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you, Peter, to come to his house and hear a message from you. So so he invited them in and gave them lodging. Um, The next day he got up and went with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And uh, so Cornelius, knowing that Peter was coming, had called together his relatives and his close friends. And then dropping down to verse 44 while Peter was still so Peter you know had come there and had joined and then Peter gave uh, shared with them the good news and while Peter was still speaking these words the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message on all the circumcised all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also Cornelius, his entire household and beyond, was impacted by one heart for God. Here, the household was a platform from God for God's truth to come to others. So here, Cornelius and his home, and was used as a platform for others to actually hear this message and to be impacted by it. Uh, flipping over to Acts chapter sixteen. Here, Paul's on a second missionary journey, and uh, he is, uh, he's near Philippi, and he comes uh, in verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening to the Lord, was listening to what he was saying, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. 
And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you judge me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon them. Here we had Lydia, an Old Testament believer, and the Lord opened her heart to believe in Christ, and her whole household was baptized. Get one heart, and oftentimes a whole household changes at the heart level. I know some people that that sort of thing has happened. Has that happened to anybody in here? Where, you know, one person within a home uh, gets their heart changed and they start impacting those other familiar, familial relationships, and God actually does a work across those. Um, those other relationships. Uh, also in Acts chapter 16, a little bit further down, uh, in verse, we're going to start in verse 29, but this is the, the Philippian jailer. So in Philippi, uh, the Paul was imprisoned and put in the jail and, uh, and there was a great earthquake, and uh, the, the doors were opened, and the jailer, in verse 27, when the jailer awoke, he saw the prison doors opened, and he drew out his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he, the jailer, called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a great question. And in verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And they took, and he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with all his household. So here, this Philippian jailer took just, you know, part of this scene just surprises me that one who is in charge of prisoners, who knows the kind of people who are typically in prison, brings these two prisoners into his home. That in and of itself should be a kind of a shocking statement. And brings them into his home to hear this message, his heart is transformed. His household's hearts are transformed. They are all baptized. Because, uh, in verse 34, they all believed. Again, God impacted one person, and the whole house was affected. The next category to align our view of the home with God's is going to be number six, the attack on the household. <coughs> If God has significant concern for the household, we shouldn't be surprised that it would come under attack by his enemies. So let's go to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3. But we realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households 
and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Where are the men? Evidently, the women in these homes didn't know how the gospel addressed their sin or impulses, and they weren't equipped well to know how to deal with their sins and their desires. They were always learning something, but evidently it wasn't a learning from God's word that impacted their hearts. They were seeking, they were soaking in false teaching. This should also be a warning to us. What are our wives and our kids reading? What books, what blogs, what social media? How, what is coming in? Is God's word primarily taking that or other media? Let's go to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 9. And at verses 5 through 9, Titus is talking about elder qualifications again. And here in verse 9, he says that an elder or an overseer holding fast should be one that holds fast the faithful word which is in accordance with teaching so that he the elder will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict verse 10 for there are many rebellious men empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families teaching things that should not be that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain Again, where are the men in these homes um, such that these whole families can be upset with this, with this teaching? Uh, the household's best protection against this is going to be a man who is shepherding his heart, who can then shepherd his family into the church where there are shepherds who can refute doctrinal error with sound doctrine. The men need to be able to refute error with sound doctrine. So work by the grace of God and the gospel to equip yourselves to not leave your wife and your children vulnerable to this false teaching. To false teaching. The next category to align our our view of the home with God's is going to be uh, number seven. The household can become an obstacle to the gospel. The obstacle can become a house, uh, an obstacle to the gospel. That's in Matthew chapter 10. Do not think that I, this is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father. And a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, but he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. The gospel of the kingdom invades one life within a family. And what happens next is so important. The saved individual is called to bring the gospel to his family, those that are right around him. But those relationships are under the gospel of Christ. Those family relationships are not above the gospel, but under it. The family is not the apex 
of God's redemptive plan. But obviously, we've talked about, we've been covering from God's word all over the place, how important God's, how important the family is to God's heart. But the gospel is the apex of God's plan. The family is a servant of gospel supremacy and the mission advancing and its mission advancing in the world. Sometimes, as we saw with Cornelius and Lydia and the Philippian jailer, how God saves a whole household. But those instances where the gospel is submitting to the greater institution, those are not instances where the, where the gospel is submitting to the greater institution called the family. How should we think rightly about the gospel's mission and our household? Sometimes the gospel expresses itself. Sometimes the gospel expresses its supremacy in different ways. One is by bringing the entire household, uh, bringing the entire household itself under the gospel through one member of the family, like we've seen. Or sometimes it's by splitting up members of the household against one another. Jesus tells us here that oftentimes the gospel will divide families. We're going to skip those next two. Can we say, Pastor? Um, sure. We say the church is the, is the apex of God's glorious plan, or did you say the gospel is the apex of God's the gospel is the apex of God's plan for redemption. If you want to think about it and ask me afterwards. The next category that we have to align our view of the home with God's is number eight. Leading a wife requires a strong grasp of the gospel and the church. Let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see that to it that she respects her husband. Husbands must spend the rest of your life developing a solid grasp of how Jesus loved the church. So that your love for your wife can be what it's supposed to be. And men must have a grasp on the church, the oneness of the church and body with Christ. The husband must shepherd his heart with the doctrine of the church because marriage isn't merely about marriage, but the relationship between Jesus and the church. If the body of Christ 
and the gospel is an afterthought to the man, his love for his wife will similarly be stunted. Number nine, the next category to align our view of the home with God's view, uh, a New Testament model marriage. New Testament model marriage. Acts chapter 18. We're almost done. Good job hanging in there. Acts chapter 18, verse, starting in verse 1. After these things, this is Paul. After these things, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Flipping over to verses 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. And uh, flipping over to Romans, I'll pull this all together here real quick. Romans chapter 16, verse 3. This is Paul at the end of the book of Romans. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. So these were companions and co Priscilla and Aquila were companions and co-laborers with Paul. They came alongside Apollos. They risked their necks, their own lives, for Paul and for the gospel. The household for them was a platform. Their marriage, their, 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 that household relationship was a platform for the church. And it was well suited for the church. Yours? Can you imagine the spiritual aroma of your home facilitating the fellowship of the body of Christ? The overwhelming message of the Bible is that the man of God places a priority on spiritually influencing his household with his heart for Jesus in the gospel. And God's heart for the home through that man cannot be missed. So, in summary, you know, what can we conclude from all these nine categories? Uh, negatively, to ignore or neglect or be indifferent to household relationships would be in stark contrast to God's thoughts and expectations for our homes and those relationships. Positively, with a heart that is shepherded to God through his word, that man must step lovingly, boldly into the household relationships with the word of God to care for those in his own household. If you're a man that does that with your home, that's evidence. You know, If you're a man that does that shepherding with God's word in your home, 
that's evidence that you've seen God's heart for the household. So we just, it's nine o'clock. Um, so we just walked through an awful lot of scripture. Obviously, I said this was a survey, so this was going to be going all over the place, but it's just incredibly clear. God's, God has a plan to use, this is, this is how he's using the home and those household relationships. It's very important to him, and it needs to be rightfully important to us as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we've had to, to just go through a lot of your word to see your heart for the home. God, I pray as we leave here that our homes would be affected. All of our homes. Lord, that would uh, just impact, your word would impact our homes and those relationships. And then that would then be used to, to do ministry, to impact others that we do not know that are not in our homes. Um, Lord, we just want to see you magnified. We want to see people come to know you uh, such that they would be saved to be with you. Jesus, it's always in your great name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.